0: This episode is brought to you by Shit Audio, manufacturers of sanely priced stacks, amplifiers, preamplifiers, and EQ devices. Click the link in the show notes for more information. welcome back everybody to another episode of the darker audio podcast with me this time out is somebody who's actually phoning from the future it's one mark jenkins who's calling us from new zealand welcome mark hi john uh, it's very cold here uh here it's pretty warm there oh yeah because it's winter obviously i always forget this even though i live in that part of the world it's winter in new zealand right now yes Absolutely. it is it has been very hot here but i would say actually this is the first cool day we've had in about a week. So I've got all my windows and doors open. So if we hear sort of police sirens, helicopters, which you do hear because I live right in the middle of the city, um, please forgive that. It might add some local colour. I don't know. Now, Mark, can you tell us, I mean, essentially, who are you in relation to HiFi? fi oh,
1: Okay. Um, I'm the CEO of Antipodes Audio, and we specialise in high-end music servers, but we cover quite a wide range of... Price points, we try and trickle down there. What we
0: discover at the very high end into the more affordable end. Mm. And but you also make uh, what I would call music streamers as well, things that connect to DAX.
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I guess I see music services encompassing uh, the range of that, and sometimes streamers applied to a DAC that's got a um, an Ethernet input, so it can um, it can be confusing sometimes.
0: It can. I mean, I the way I like, to, well, the way I choose to describe it often on my YouTube channel is that um, a server sort of sits attached to your router anywhere in the house, right? And then it streams its files, its audio files, to a streamer that's hooked into the deck in your hi-fi system, which is obviously in your listening room, right? Now, obviously, the two can be combined, which I think is mainly what you do. You have a server streamer in one box or yes, several so different great. models, right? Right. Yeah. But it's... I'm, I'm I'm not meaning to split right from the get-go, but it's just important <laughs> that people understand that there are two components in each box, essentially.
1: Um, yes, or at least there are multiple stages to get from um, a file or an internet stream mm. to providing a digital audio signal to a DAC. There are multiple stages in that, and that may be one box or several boxes.
0: Right. Now, this brings us to why we are talking today, because – I think we're going to cover probably one of the one of the biggest hot button issues that I come across when I'm writing or and especially making videos about hi-fi gear. In that, if I cover a streaming product, so basically we're talking about a device that sends a digital audio stream into a DAC, and I say that this, let's call it product A, actually causes the DAC, for whatever reason to sound different to product B that sends the same file into the same DAC. I tend to hit, especially on YouTube, a tidal wave of comments from people saying, John, this is nonsense. We all know that digital audio is just ones and zeros, and all these products are doing are just moving the file from A to B, and they, they should all sound the same. And I've got to say, it makes covering those kinds of products, quite a challenge because there's a lot of people who think this way, Mark, especially out on YouTube. Now, I'd like to sort of unpack this today and maybe you could help us understand why two different streaming slash server products could potentially sound different.
1: Okay. Um, Yeah, I think people are looking at just one half of the issue when they they make those comments. So yes, it's true. that um, you can move a file from one computer to another over uh, a packet network, uh, or it could be packets that are even put over an analog network somewhere. It doesn't matter. Uh, And the file can be reassembled at the other end perfectly. Mm. Um, That's what the whole um, data packet network uh, technology was designed to do. But it's not the same problem as playing a digital audio file. Mm. Um, so if you've ever seen a, um, an analog audio signal uh, on a page in a document or a page in a website, it's two-dimensional. It has an amplitude dimension and a time dimension.
0: So you're talking about you... the, sort of the, the, sort of the squiggity lines that go crazy up and down, and exactly. that's the, the waveform, we, right? Yeah.
1: yeah, well, we only hear sound because mm. of changes in amplitude. Over time, mm-hmm. and if it uh, if the change is is um, taller, then it's louder, and if the change is faster, then it's more high pitched. So both the amplitude and the, and the time matter. Um, now, when you're moving a um, a web page uh, to your computer, or you're moving an Excel file from one computer to another. Um, that's analogous to only taking the amplitude information. Mm
0: -hmm. So the time uh, time differences make no difference there, right?
1: Exactly. Um, So a digital audio file, um, yes, it's full of ones and zeros. Those ones and zeros, um, when they're transmitted, they're in packets and the packet has a header Uh, and that followed by data. The Mm -hmm. header has a bunch of pieces of information to make sure that that, uh, when you need to play this thing that you know how to play it. The data only represents the amplitude. So when uh, digital audio um, recordings are made, the amplitude is measured at multiple, discrete, evenly spaced points uh, in time Mm -hmm. across the music. And then the header says how quickly you, sh- uh, at what speed should you be playing at? What bit rate should you be playing these samples?
0: Mm-hmm. But you're
1: only, the samples are only recording amplitude.
0: Mm.
1: So it's true that um, it's only ones and zeros when you're talking about the amplitude dimension. The time dimension, how that occurs, is, is during the playback of that file, and it's not ones and zeros. It's not discrete things. So let's talk about how discrete one and zero is. So say, for example, in a digital audio signal, uh, a zero is represented by zero volts, and a Mm. one is represented by the signal being at one volt. And the receiver uh, recognizes that it shifted from zero to one or one to zero when the signal goes through um, half a volt level. So that signal can be grossly distorted, or fairly grossly distorted, and as long as the signal's above half a volt, you can assume it's a one. And as long as the signal's below half a volt, you can assume it's a zero. Mm -hmm. So you're likely to be able to get um, the ones and zeros perfectly read, even when there's quite high levels of distortion of the file. Mm. So when you are putting this together and you have to get the timing right, if there's distortion in the time dimension, then the sound is going to be off. So as I say, um, your your comment that a lot of people say, this is rubbish, it's all just ones and zeros, that's very true for the, amplified, uh, the amplitude dimension.
0: It mm. doesn't
1: mean that it's a doddle. Uh, to play a digital audio file, because you need to be able to get the timing perfectly right. And we all know that um distortion of an analog signal, you can hear it. well, distortion of a digital audio
0: signal, you can hear it too,
1: because that distortion changes the timing information.
0: Okay, so then I mean i've I've tried to present this to commenters before. And then the next thing they say is, well, you could just clock the data into a buffer. And then clock it out again. Where's the problem? Okay, so <laughs> in a yeah, look, I get it. Uh, you,
1: it's one of the great things about uh, digital audio. Uh, you can have a um, a file that uh, has no timing information, more or less, uh, in it, or very poor timing information in it, in the sense that a file sitting in RAM ready to be played has mm. no real timing information. Uh, and in the sense that a streamed file over the internet is going to have pretty terrible uh, arrival times. Um, and then you can fix it along the way and get better sound at the end of that. But you're not going to be able to fix it perfectly. Perfectly. Mm. Um, uh, so let's talk about how that's really done. Um, when it's actually a file or packets It's the way you characterise it is is, uh, reasonably correct. You're putting that into a form of storage, and then you're reading out of that uh, with a decent clock. Now it's interesting when you are actually reading out of um, pure RAM, uh, the clock's actually not that important. A, A decent clock is is okay. The biggest problem is the amount of um, processing power that you tend to need. So, people want an interface like Rune or any other player interface, which mm. tends to require a complex uh, operating system and uh, support of a whole lot of functions. And you know, we find that to get really good performance at at that stage, you you just need a whole lot of power. Mm-hmm. Um, possibly a whole lot of thread so that so that things aren't being interfered with, and somehow you need to um, constrain the amount of noise interference that you're generating when you do that. So as I said earlier, any distortion is going to muck up the timing. So even if you manage to take it out of, out of RAM with good timing, if you haven't use a lot of power to do it well, and there's a lot of other things going on in the operating system or the or the player software we're using, then that's interfering with the signal. So, a great clock is only as good as how well that
0: that information can be handled without being distorted. Can I ask um an, an, an sort of interstitial question here? Because I'd love to be clear for readers: what kind of clock speeds are we talking about here, and how do they relate to things that we know of, like CD quality being basically oh, right. being samples? It, Played back at forty four point one thousand times per second.
1: Yeah, uh, when you multiply that up um, by a, a bit depth of sixteen bits, which is CD quality, um, mm-hmm. and and two channels, then I think you get to one point four uh, megabits um,
0: a second. Yeah, but if yeah. you start
1: talking about you know 30 bit uh, or three eighty four seven sixty eight Sample rate, you get up to some pretty big numbers. And so it only takes a very small timing difference um, to make a significant difference in the in the presentation of the music.
0: So can I be clear again? So the 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 clock rate generally reflects the bit rate of the file, not the sample rate? Uh both. Yeah, the multiplication of the two. So right.
1: um, <clears throat> Well, it depends. it depends how you look at it, I guess. <laughs> In terms of when you're talking about uh, bit rate, that really is ones and zeros. And the ones and zeros, um, uh, you know, two to the 16 um, times a uh, couple of channels uh, times the sample rate. Mm. So they, they all multiply together to give you the bit rate.
0: Okay. So the, what we're talking about here is clocks that have to run very, very fast
1: very, very fast, and also very, very accurately. And on top of that, that information has to be transmitted to where that information is needed Mm. without error as well. So there's a point at which um, the noise inside a noisy computer is going to overwhelm any benefit in putting a better clock into that computer, for example.
0: So you're saying that the... The electrical noise generated by, say, for example, higher CPU usage can disturb the clock, the clock's accuracy.
1: Uh, well, not necessarily disturb the clock. The clock can be accurate where it is, hmm. but its information's needed somewhere else. So, for example, um, how you do a buffer and re-clock with uh, a digital audio signal <laughs> is not reading data into uh, memory at all and hmm. then clocking it out. It's done by, you know, usually a phase lock loop. Now there are another couple of methods, but it doesn't matter. The point's the same. It's done with a phase lock loop, which is like a um, negative feedback circuit. So, the data that comes into that step in the process, this, the so-called buffer and reclock, clock um, the the timing in that data is compared to a very high-quality clock and an error is determined and the error is then inverted and fed back on top of the signal in order Mm. to supposedly fix it. Now, to do that, you need a circuit board with components and the clock's data sitting, uh, you know, a few inches away, a couple of inches away, has to also be transmitted there without picking up noise. Mm. So, None of these things can be done perfectly. Just as we don't have perfect loudspeakers, we don't have perfect amplifiers, we don't have perfect DAC stages. Um, so, the idea that this buffer memory clock can turn um, poorly timed data or, or a, a signal with poor noise on it into uh, a perfect signal is is a fallacy. Uh, now, can I just want to emphasise the point conceptually: writing data into a buffer and then cleanly clocking it out of there. That's um, that is more an accurate description of what you're doing with the digital data when it's um, when it's a set of packets representing a file. Mm. When it's a digital audio signal, and that's what you really need to clean up before it goes into the DAC, when it's a digital audio signal, it's a phase-locked loop, which is like a feedback mechanism. Mm -hmm. Just as uh, negative feedback in an amplifier doesn't make an amplifier perfect, it's the same thing with a phase-locked loop. Um, It doesn't make it perfect either. And the best DACs out there... um, will actually do, or I can think of one that does three reclocking stages, um, and it does one of them in a separate box so that it can use a large amount of power to do that reclocking because it doesn't want to apply that much power close to the DAC chip where that the noise that is a, that is a function of that power um, would interfere with the, with the operation of the DAC and the analog circuitry. So... Um, to to suggest that any old face-like loop suddenly makes a digital audio signal perfect is is really an extraordinary
0: claim. So what you're, I guess, what, what I'm picking up from what you're saying is that these sort of arguments that I hear from YouTube commenters are really sort of theoretical abstractions, and so they they're don't an abstraction from reality, absolutely. Right, and they don't really have, they don't communicate the the complexities and the subtleties. Of reality of actually doing what you've just described, right? Well, part of it
1: depends on yeah, how good do you want your sound to be. Because, hmm. um, you know, if you just apply the available theories, which re- really what they're quoting to you, if you just apply the, the available theories, you can certainly make the thing work and make music. But in audio, we're working between that and perfection, knowing we'll never get to perfection, but we're try, we're striving for it. And when you do that, you're dealing with all the other stuff that is not in the theory. Um, so when I was at university, this became really apparent when we were trying to run experiments to test and prove or disprove theories. Mm. Um, the theory was pretty well tested by others and and proven, if you like. Um, But we struggled sometimes to get our experiments to actually support that. And the reason was we were novices. And to run that experiment to prove the theory, we had to run that experiment in a way that eliminated all these other influences, which might just be a temperature change because of how during the experiment, because of how it was run, because we allowed some friction to cause some temperature change, mm. it could be, you know, hundreds of things. And we learned very quickly that that there's a whole lot of other things that affect the desired outcome. Um, the theory uh, is always limited to a small range of factors um, in order to be able to be a useful and understandable theory.
0: But it doesn't mean that there are uh, yeah. things that can affect things in the real world. You've mentioned electrical noise a couple of times now, Mark, and we hear this a lot, and I'm personally a bit hazy on how, I mean, how that can detrimentally affect either the digital signal, which I'm going to say is probably not a digital signal in reality. It's, it's, it's voltages, right? So it's in the analogue domain.
1: Yes, or even if it's um, – even if it's. Uh, uh, flashes of light. It doesn't really matter. Those flashes of light may be uh, generated, first of all, off a electrical digital signals. just for this step of the transmission. It's now a flashes of light. There's still mm. a potential for the noise that's in the electrical signal before it gets there to actually cause the, the light to stutter a bit. Uh, there's a potential for reflections at the connection point, reflections because the cable isn't perfectly straight, so there's reflections off the walls. There's all kinds of things that can interfere with with any way of representing uh ones and
0: zeros in a signal you're gonna transmit from one place to another. So what but what does what does actual noise actually do to that signal? I mean, does it distort the voltage waveform or shift the sort of what where you would hope to see a one and a zero along a bit to the right or a bit to the left? Is what what does it do?
1: Yeah, so um so let's stick with the electrical waveform. Um, electrical noise can get onto that just because of its proximity. So if you have some, um, uh, if the transmission line um, for the data is near, you know, a transformer or some other active component, uh, then uh, you can get what what is an engineer call noise that is things that are not part of what you wanted reflected on that. Transmission line as well. Um, so, how does that how does that change timing? Um, so, uh, we we can't draw a square wave for the listeners here, but um, mm-hmm. a, uh, a square wave is is a straight line followed by a vertical line followed by a straight mm. line followed by a vertical line down again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if you have limited bandwidth and you know there is no Transmission line that has infinite bandwidth. Uh, so all, all, like, all
0: they're all bandwidth limited. All these Yes, sort of I mean we'd line. all
1: like infinite bandwidths on our um, on our uh, internet connections at home, wouldn't mm. we? But we don't uh, mm. because ban- in- bandwidth isn't infinite. That um, that step up between the zero and the one, and then down again from the from the one to zero. Um, if that's vertical, it means we're at one volt and zero volt at more or less the same instant, Mm -hmm. um, that requires infinite bandwidth. Right. Um, So we're going to have a slope instead. Now, if the digital receiver is going to decide that we've transitioned from a zero to a one, when the signal goes up and reaches the 0.5 volt level, and it's a slope rather than a vertical line. Mm -hmm. And now put some vertical wiggles on that slope, and you'll see that the exact precise point where that signal um, goes through the 0.5 volt level is actually now not, um, not perfect. It's not in the perfect place. Now imagine that you've got... Now that's for noise that's above... The bit rate,
0: so the wiggles um, are caused by the noise. Yes, but right.
1: um, there's also noise that is below the bit rate, which actually mm. moves the um, the square wave like it's on on a on an ocean with waves, and so that moves this slightly sloping line up and down. Oh. Um, so you can also see how that noise also obscures. The perfect timing of the transition between the zero and the one. Mm-hmm. So, um, as long as if you had perfect bandwidth, uh, infinite bandwidth, and if you had, z- or if you had zero noise, then you'd be able to discern the timing perfectly accurately if it was sent perfectly accurately. In, in the first case, mm. um, but as soon as you've got any combination. Of noise, whether it's above or below the bit rate, uh, and less than infinite bandwidth, then the ability to discern the transition at perfectly the right
0: time is obscured. And we're talking about the data coming out of, let's say, for example, a phase lock loop, a PLL. Anywhere, really. I want to take a little diversion here just to be clear for listeners as well, is that if we're talking about Ethernet transmission, yes, I, as far as I understand it, Mark, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the, all the data that sort of has been sent from the, let's say, the source, or the, let's say an internet stream that arrives out of that Ethernet um, connection is error checked and error corrected, right? So there's no there's no real fault with the error. What you're talking about here is the... The, the the timing displacement of the 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 bits. Yes. <laughs> um,
1: what we want going into the deck is a perfect square wave, and in particular, mm-hmm. we want. We don't mind if it's a bit compressed or a bit expanded in the amplitude dimension, because of what I mentioned earlier. It mm-hmm. doesn't stop you knowing when you know which ones are one and which ones are zero, but the time dimension. Is very important, and when you um, say receive a, um, a stream that is going over an Ethernet connection, that connection is asynchronous. So its time is not timing is not perfect anyway. Mm. Um, it's messy um, because it's designed to get a file perfectly from one place to another. Mm-hmm. It's not designed to send the packets with perfect timing from one point to another. And that's where streaming protocols come in. Streaming protocols, first of all, are trying to send you the packets in the right order. So when you start playing your Netflix file, it's got the bits of the file that are the opening sequence, rather than you having to wait for the whole film to come down before you can start watching it. Mm -hmm. So that's great. Um, While a streaming protocol may... Attempt to get the timing right, as things like um, Rune Rat protocol do. Um, it doesn't mean that it's not going to encounter collisions with other data if you're putting it over your LAN, and and, and if you certainly if you're putting it over uh, the internet. So there'll be busy routers which will say, "Hold on, I can't pass it on just yet." In fact, I'm going to drop it. You have to resend it. Mm. Um, all of that's going to happen in a in a uh, the packet world because the end of the day, it's just trying to get the file perfectly accurately from one point to another. It really doesn't care too much about timing issues. So you you start off with a fairly poorly timed thing, and the idea that you could just read that into a buffer and clock it out again and be perfect is, is in practice, a bit of a joke. Um, Mm. Certainly at the moment with the technology we have today, it takes several steps to get it into... The sort of form where you'd begin to consider digital audio rivaling um, a mid-range turntable. Um, mm. It's not certainly can't be done in a single step. It's a multi-step process.
0: So, if I may just recap a little bit, let's say I'm streaming a file from I don't know Spotify title. It arrives at my let's say it's a streaming DAC. Um, yeah. All the all the data arrives a OK. It's 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 parity checked. It's error corrected. Packets are reset if they need to be. So there's no question that no the, question all the all bits of, the, all, of the, right. all of the
1: amplitude, all of the amplitude information is there, and all of the right. header information that um, that you need in order to or the deck needs in order to know what to do with it is right. there. Right, absolutely. And then,
0: it, and then it comes into my sort of streaming DAC now before it gets decoded to an analog signal. It is, it's going to go into a phase lock loop. It, no, it's right? going okay. to be
1: converted. Well, the stream is a bunch of data packets. Hmm. That's not what a DAC chip requires. Right. What a DAC right. chip requires
0: is a digital audio signal. So it requires samples, right? If it's PCM.
1: Um, yes. Well, it. Yeah. Yeah. It's. um <laughs> it's, a, it's a little, little bit. Um, yeah. It, at the DAC chip, it cares a whole lot about time. When you're mm. at the um, the file or, or packet level over asynchronous link, it really doesn't care too much about time. So mm. you've got to um, you've got to move from asynchronous Ethernet um, representation of the file to a digital audio signal mm-hmm. um, that. A deck chip can play, so that digital audio signal um, going into the deck chip, um, to be specific, is uh, I squared S or DSD, depending on what the file says it is.
0: So it's not. I understand all the all the all the. All the, so the file arriving at the the Ethernet socket is a stream of ones and zeros. Um, it is. Mm-hmm. It's a set of
1: packets, actually, um, and those packets are delineated. But but um, I squared S and DSD uh, going into the deck chip are not. They may sit in packets before they get there. But
0: right. But what I'm trying to get to here, Mark, is that most people understand PCM audio to be 44.1 thousand samples per second, and each sample has a bit depth of 16 for CD quality, right? So. And the way that I was, you know, taught this in school is basically every sample you'd need, um, is it, is it, yeah, is it 16 ones and zeros to kind of determine the amplitude at that very one slice of time? And then the next sample produces the next slice of time, 44.1, yeah, thousand times per second. Right. So how do we go from this sort of series of packets from ethernet? Okay. Um, so what's, uh, confusing, for uh, people
1: uh, typically is the layered nature of um, uh, digital transmission. So uh, let's take, for example, uh, DSD. Um, DSD is just a stream of ones and zeros, right? There's no PCM mm-hmm. packets, etc. Well, yeah. when you transmit yeah. it, there are. So um DOP, for example, is um, DSD uh, shoved in uh, CD-length uh, PCM packets and then it's unpacked from there. Mm-hmm. And one of the messy things with that is uh, that there's header data in the way. It's not just a constant stream and, you know, the packets are relatively small. Uh, native mm-hmm. DSD... Is also um, DSD data stuffed into PCM-style packets, except that it's a a, a bigger packet, uh, 32-bit, and uh, mm-hmm. and instead of the header data saying "Hey, I'm DSD, please decode me as DSD," that's done by a form of ASIO, um, so you don't have the interruption of eight of, um, you know, bits of header so um when you're transmitting um over length of cable uh you really requ- require the uh, uh the help of what a packet network can do when you're putting it over uh, mm. an inch or so of, a, of track going into a, a deck chip uh, then yes it can be a, a stream of ones and zeros um,
0: so you're saying that basically the, the data stream that Arrives at the ethernet port has to be essentially depacketized before it can be streamed into the um, DAC chip.
1: It may be um, PCM packets sitting within some other form of transport packet like ATM or um, mm. some, something else, uh, Ethernet packets, for example. Mm. So you have, layer, you have layers of technology in order to achieve different things. So um, it doesn't go cleanly just from one form of packet to another. Sometimes it's, it's a, a format uh, or packet sitting in, inside another packet for the purposes of transmission because that's how that layer of transmission is controlled. So it, it, mm. this gets a little complex.
0: Right. So, I mean, I guess between the say, let's the, say, the Ethernet input on my streaming DAC and the actual DAC chip itself that converts it to analog, there's, there's a lot of processing that has to go on to there's a bit that's got right. to happen yeah
1: yeah I think okay so if, let's let's try and break that down um for us we we see um, the first step is is being the server step and the server step is um, running software like run server or or uh, Logitech media server or minima server or something like that um, and that can be reading from a file, or it can uh, bring in a um, a stream like Tidal or Spotify. Mm -hmm. Um, That then, the the main purpose of that is to get it into reasonable shape and stream it uh, to the player step. Now, the player app may be on the same computer, but It's still streaming it, um, usually uh, with an Ethernet-like protocol or Ethernet protocol, uh, between the the two. Um, And then the player turns it from uh, an asynchronous, uh, a wholly asynchronous thing like like Ethernet, um, to something that is perhaps less asynchronous, um, like USB audio, uh, and then Mm -hmm. USB audio um, may transfer it to a reclocking stage, which uh, converts it into a synchronous audio. So synchronous audio is things like SPDIF, uh, AES3, which used to be called AES-EBU, I2S, or something like that, Um, whereas Mm -hmm. USB isn't, and Ethernet isn't either. Um, so if you've got an uh, an Ethernet um, port on your DAC, you might use um, a music server to clean that up a bit and reserve it hmm. um, and send it to that Ethernet port or you may connect it directly to um, title server you know 10,000 or two thousand or wherever you live. Kilometres away. Mm. Um, what happens when it goes inside the, the DAC is that it then goes through the stages of, of performing the player function to turn it into some form of mm-hmm. possibly synchronous um, at that stage, but that's still a two-stage process. And then it'll go through a reclock um, in, before it goes into the DAC. Uh, and so, what that Ethernet yeah. input is doing um, is a much bigger job than if it receives uh, a Spdif or AS or uh, other other input, because it's already in a synch- synchronous form, and it just needs to go through it, transition to I squared S or DSD, and uh, and a, a reclock to get into the deck. So, an Ethernet input. Means more of the music server process is done within the DAC than a USB input, and a USB input means more of the mm. music server process is done within the. Uh, sorry, have I got I got that around the wrong way? Um, an Ethernet uh, input does more of the music server process than a USB input, and a USB input does more of the music server process than uh, one of the synchronous inputs. Um, so for us, mm. we would argue, and this is just Antipodes' um, viewpoint that you want to do the server function, the player function, and this the reclock to a synchronous form outside of the deck because you need power to do those things and power comes with a bit of a noise overhead. And when you get close to the DAC chip, you really don't want a lot of noise there. So you do a final Mm -hmm. um, reclock right at the end of of the step. Now, some DAC manufacturers, I think, agree with us because some of them are now producing, at least for their top models, two-box DACs where the first box is doing a very heavy, high-powered reclock away from the deck box, uh, and then doing another Mm -hmm. lighter, uh, lower-powered reclock close to the deck gym. Now, we're talking about expensive components here, our our components are expensive, and the the decks I'm talking about are Mm. expensive. So when you try and make something that's cheaper, you can either do all the same things more cheaply, or you start to cut doing things out. and do those reasonably well, so you get a bit of both of that. So for us, our top music server has a, a powerful computer to do the server step, uh, a less powerful, much lower noise, um, but full computer um, to do the the uh, player step, and then finally we have an FPGA. Um, uh, Based, but still very powerful, reclocking using oven-controlled clock and things like graphing capacitors on the power supply, all that sort of stuff, to do that extremely well. And we would prefer to be sending uh, an already nicely clocked synchronous signal to the DAC so that the DAC does very little work and it doesn't need to do much more than the sort of reclock that is found in most DACs. So most DACs don't have a very powerful re-clocking it it's this, the signal needs to be pretty ah, good okay. before it gets there. And I say there's a few mm. exceptions and they're often two boxes, um, not always, um, where there's a lot of high powered stuff going on. But um yeah you know, that that costs quite a lot of money to do particularly to to insulate the DAC from that. So the difference between uh, an Ethernet importer or a USB import or, or a synchronous importer on a DAC, there's really a difference in architecture, It's a difference in where you're deciding to have the jobs done. Um, so yes, you can decide to have the whole so did, job done within the DAC, but we'd say some of those jobs shouldn't be done inside the DAC.
0: So is this why external reclockers tend to have an effect on what we hear from our DAC? Because the, the, the processing of reclocking, the intense CPU processing, is Moved away from the actual DA conversion process.
1: Yes, and of course you can put it in the deck if you like, mm. and you can then spend money trying to insulate the two, right? Or you can put it in a separate box, and and some of the best ones, as I say, are now putting them in separate boxes.
0: Right, but am I understanding you correctly in thinking that basically one of the key or po- well, the key sort of turning points of a digital signal, is when. You're clocking it out into a synchronous mode, if you like, just before it gets fed into the DAC conversion stage.
1: Yes. So um, the asynchronous modes, such as Ethernet or, or USB, mm. um, the reason why they're uh, asynchronous is that they're expecting to get music, uh, digital audio signal, or or um, Uh, digital audio file, packetized, that's got poor timing. Mm -hmm. So, um, in an asynchronous mode, the receiver can say, hey, slow down, Um, my buffer is going to overfill. Or, hey, speed up, my buffer is going to run out. So, in asynchronous mode, the receiver is able to avoid problems of the buffer overflowing or running out. And so, you use those modes when the timing is is still quite poor, mm-hmm. um, but getting um, so. So if you had, um, if you're attempting to get wonderful precision there in sending stuff, it's a little bit futile if the receiver is controlling the speed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, further down the line, where you're talking about synchronous modes that's quite different. You're doing that with buffer and reclock um, with the signal already having reasonable timing, so you don't need to control the arrivals to stop the buffer uh, emptying or or overflowing. Um, And that's where you really need very, very high precision Mm. of the synchronous signal. Now, it doesn't mean you can't then reclock it again, um, but the timing becomes really important when you're at the synchronous stage. Prior to that, you're getting in a decent shape for that stage.
0: What do you say to people who say, I mean, I see a lot of this. You know, people say, oh, the DAC can sort out all of these problems by itself, especially with things like um, sort of a, oh, my brain's gone blank mark on what it's called, like, a, <laughs> like, a, like, a, like a, an electrical isolation of the USB input. Oh, right.
1: Right. Okay. Um, electrical isolation. Okay. Um, so, yeah. How would I describe that? Uh, all all it, I think what you're talking about is people point to galvanic isolation. That's the word for I've forgotten.
0: Yes, 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 yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, hmm. the, there are a variety of ways of doing galvanic isolation. Hmm. Um, but really, that's only dealing with part of the problem. If the signal itself has noise on it, galvanic isolation can't remove it. All that galvanic isolation is doing is saying, I'm going to remove other paths for noise to travel from that source component into, into me. Um, right. As I say, galvanic isolation has no effect. On the signal coming through, it doesn't go. Oh, this is this is the signal and this is noise. I'm taking the noise out. It doesn't do that. So it o- filters can do that.
0: So an already noisy signal will just sail on through. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So you know the idea that
1: that it's a silver bullet is a bit of a joke. It's dealing with one source of, of stray noise, getting uh, causing an issue.
0: So if I've got, say, for example, a network streamer, it's got a USB output, I feed it into a DAC that has USB input, and that USB input is galvanically isolated. And then I say, well, okay, the streamer can influence the sound of the DAC because of the presence of electrical noise. The galvanic isolated USB input will, well, reject or block any noise coming from the component separate to the the, the audio signal, the signal. right? Yes. Right. Um, so so um, when you're
1: connecting a DAC with a USB input to some kind of source with a USB output, you're generally connecting it to a computer. Now, how a um, computer's uh, earth is quite different from how you, you earth a DAC. Mm. So there's issues about earth noise traveling along with a the signal. There's issues of... You know, possibly a, a noisy power supply running the. Um, if it's a standard computer, um, there, there's all kinds of things that the DAC's going to worry about mm-hmm. um, with noise coming in because it's it's holding hands with a computer. Um, but that the galvanic isolation is really just just dealing with those things that aren't on the signal mm-hmm. that might get across. So. Th- um, there are issues like the um, for USB these days to uh, handshake etc. Um, there has to um, you'll need a five volt signal um, coming across, and on the top of that five volt signal, you have to have a data carrier for communications. Mm-hmm. So, what's a data carrier sitting on a five volt signal? It's equivalent to a noisy power supply. Mm-hmm. So, do you really want a noisy power supply running things inside your DAC? So you therefore want to um, create some isolation between the rest of your DAC and the USB input. So um, what what you do is you have a USB input and then you galvanically isolate it mm-hmm. from from the rest of your DAC. Yeah, but that's not, it's not as simple as it sounds. Um, it's quite a complex thing to do that. Mm. Um, for example... Uh, some devices do the galvanic isolation by ta- uh, having the circuit boards uh, not electrically connected other than having chips um, sitting across the two, um, one on the USB input side and the other on the, the DAC side. Now, those ICs might have um, terrible timing performance, so you then need to have a clock um, controlling everything that they they do and uh, that requires a lot of really good componentry to to achieve that. So it's not the fact of galvanic isolation, it's also the quality of how you do that. Mm. And you know typically these things cost money because you need um, high quality components to do that sort of thing, really good clocks, really good capacitors, and really good layout
0: right so what you're saying is basically galvanic isolation can't strip out the noise if it's already in the signal uh, no it can't right and it
1: doesn't necessarily do a good job just because you've got it it has to also be done very well
0: right but then even if the DAC is even if it's galvanically isolated and it's trying to, it's best to do it's re, you know clock and then re-clock the signal let's say in a phase lock loop it's that's the noise is still going to be in the signal from the outset right from the source component that you know feeds the DAC over USB. So it seems to me that then well yes, yes it can be. Um, right So the
1: ways in which you can re- you reduce the noise that's there. So a really good phase lock loop is going to do a different job than, than an ordinary one. Mm. Um, so again, it's not just a matter of oh, I've got a buffer my clock so I'm good mate. Mm. you know it, there's a big difference between doing it adequately and doing it really, really well.
0: So, is it best to do that reclocking as far away from the DAC as possible, so that then you don't mm. inject noise into the into the, your digital audio signal, and then it kind of hopefully you start with a clean signal that makes it all the way through to the DAC chip.
1: Yeah, probably not as um, succinctly as <laughs> Um I'm <sure>. sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, because so just just explain this one. Really, really, really good deck out there. Where Peace it dude. is in two boxes, mm. and uh, it it um, starts by a fairly basic clock, um, cleaning up what comes in. So, uh, the manufacturer's got to assume that people may be using pretty basic music service, um, and so it has a dot that a uh, clock that does a fairly basic. Uh, reclocking to get it in some decent shape, mm-hmm. it then does a very heavy reclocking um, with a very large amount of power in order to do it, um, referencing a clock um, that's actually in the deck box, not in the same box as the reclocking. Mm-hmm. The, the reason for that is doing the clock really well. It's also very expensive, so they decide to do have that in the deck because after it's gone through these two stages of reclocking away from the DAC, it then, after the transmission to the DAC box, it uses that very good clock closer to the reclocking circuitry, um, but with a lot less power mm. to do a final cleanup. So And analogies are never a good way of winning an argument, but sometimes they can help. Mm. Um, So say, for example, you've taken your four-wheel drive and it's absolutely caked in everything that you've driven through. Mm. Um, Now, some of the things you might need to go through is um, uh, getting a a water blaster and and blasting all the big bits off. Mm -hmm. Then you might go over with a, a sponge and some soapy water Um, then you might um, uh, rinse as much of that off as as you can. Then you might um, put some wax on, and then you you buff it, blah, blah, and you get a good result. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit like what we're doing, and it's a little, just as that is horses for courses in a particular order, Mm. that's how we approach this job as well, to get, get the timing right starting from something that's got no timing or very very bad timing Um, so any one of those isn't going to get your four wheel drive clean just getting the wax buffer out is not going to do it Um, just getting out the water blast is probably going to get you a long way hallelujah that's great but it's actually not going to get you to where you want to get if you really want your four wheel drive to look fantastic so that's that's an analogy for what we're really doing here. And there's each, of those, each of the steps that we go through are really quite different from the other, with different trade-offs between power and noise and all that sort of stuff and how good a clock it's worth having at this point in the process. Um, they're all a little different. And for us, it, you know, today, with today's technology and with what I understand uh, how to do, uh, it's a multi-step process. That's not to say that someone won't come up with a brilliant way of doing it completely perfectly or nearly perfectly because um, nothing's perfect um, in one step, but I haven't seen it yet. Um, sure, there are there are DAC, DAC manufacturers
0: who claim it, um, but that doesn't make it so. I think this is an important part of the conversation, actually, is that, yes, we're talking about, uh, temporarily compromised digital audio streams coming into a DAC, but there is this. I do see this idea out there that the, the DAC can sort of clean all of that up, a bit like you, you saying with your four-wheel drive. There's a, there's a single process that can take it from being completely caked in mud to sort of wax cleaned and sparkling, right? And yeah. there isn't such a process <laughs> that you know of in a DAC right now, right?
1: Well, certainly, Dax, it'll do something in one step, but it won't sound as good as uh, when you do it in, in four or five steps. So mm. um, I think a lot of this came about uh, when uh, people like me um, had, you know, good uh, uh, good CD players, um, but then discovered computer audio. Mm. And because I love music and computer audio gave me access to my music so much More easily, I found myself exploring uh, more of my music. I cared more about that than I did about sound quality. So Mm. I listened to, you know, and started modifying uh, little squeeze boxes. And um, and so when um, CD manufacturer sees that, I'm being a bit cynical here. um, They really need to start selling decks, Mm. and they really need to start saying to people, "Hey, don't worry about." Using any old computer because our deck will will fix it, Mm. and we've seen these uh, claims for what twenty years now Mm. or more, Um, and yet every year they come out with a better one. So um, (laughs) I think these claims that you know we can just re eliminate jitter, you know, uh, hyperbole or marketing speak, Mm. um, and nothing in high end audio is really like that. There isn't something just suddenly makes some part of this perfect. It's, it's a, it's
0: an endless quest. It's funny. It's the first time you said the word jitter and jitter really is, is a timing errors in a digital audio signal, right? And I I'm just, I'm just saying this to make yes. it clear, clear for listeners. So basically what we're saying here is that, I mean, I don't know of a single DAC that can eliminate jitter entirely, basically because I don't know of a single DAC that I've used that isn't subject to audible changes from using different source components. So from a Raspberry oh, Pi to yep. a more expensive music streamer server, like you would make, I can hear the difference. I, I would, in some cases, the difference is smaller with better decks or DAX that are better at sort of cleaning up the signal. But yes, h- here's the thing: is that I, I'm I'm I don't know if spending more money on a DAC actually buys you a better cleanup process before the deck conversion stage, you might buy you a better DAC conversion stage, better analog stage that follows that, right? Because that's also really important, but it's, it's very unclear to the customer, you know, how good a signal cleanup they're getting in their DAC. I mean, yes, manufacturers make noise about galvanic isolation, optical isolation, but as you've described, these are not silver bullets to fix everything with one shot, right? So it, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> the more you dive into this, I think the more subtly. Complex it becomes. um I i, I kind of wanted to sort of steer our conversation mark to, towards the sort of broader context of what we're talking about because I would suggest, and um, maybe you would disagree, I don't know, if you've got I don't know like a five hundred dollar or euro amplifier, of uh, let's say a thousand dollar slash euro pair of loudspeakers, and you've got a five hundred dollar DAC and you're feeding it with a computer or a Raspberry Pi, then I would say a high-end music service streamer is not really, or what you have isn't really the right context for that kind of product, right? Because you- no, it's not. I
1: think you know, for me, I don't know how to make a um, a really good sounding music server for you know a retail price of mm. of much under five thousand dollars. You know, like I can make ones at two and a half, three thousand that people like, but I, I'd struggle, you know, to, to live with them myself. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, it's a hard job to do really well. And I think the the trickle down to doing a really cheap one, um, I don't think that's really occurred in the music server business, whereas you can see, you know, there are some pretty decent sort of little amplifiers and, and decks. Uh, at cheaper prices, you know, they're not brilliant. But um, mm. I, I think it is true that it's a little bit harder to get um, – uh, you have to spend a bit more to get significantly better than what you've already, already got lying around in a in a PC or a Mac. Mm.
0: Um, I mean, I guess the point I'm trying to make here is we're talking about, I guess, what I would consider to be you know, pretty damned expensive hi-fi systems that would benefit from having – a product like yours or a, a product like it like like a multi-thousand dollar service streamer because i know that yep. many high-end audiophiles buy these things right and you then you also get a lot of people saying well they're idiots and all they're hearing is a placebo <laughs> effect right and my response to that is well, all of them they all all of them many thousands of people are, are exposed themselves to placebo continuously for the the, the ownership of that product, that's many, many thousands of people plus manufacturers like you, you know, because they like people love the conspiracy theory that these manufacturers like Mark Jenkins know that it's snake oil and their distributors (laughs) know that it's snake oil and their dealers know that it's snake oil and and the the customers are basically just subject to a placebo or confirmation bias, right? That's a lot of things that have to be true in order for this idea that all digital (laughs) audio streams sound the same, right? Do you see what I mean? Just from a
1: uh, yeah, I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd have to be pretty stupid if that was true. Um, I left a four hundred thousand dollar a year job to do this, and I think it took me seven years to make anything like that, right? Right, <laughs> uh, and I have I don't think I've made that yet, but um, <laughs> so you know, I've done it because of, of um, uh, you know, I wanted to do something I love to do, and and I love to do this, not in order to rip people off with the placebo effect. And all of my staff—I'm um, not—not that's not entirely true—all uh, uh, of the senior staff that I have mm. are here for the same reason as that. They really just love being involved, and gee, we just found a way to make this thing sound better. And uh, it's exhilarating when that happens, and it's fun to. Get it out to the market, which you know takes a long time, and then it's even more fun when people come back and say, "Wow, this is so much better than you know the last one I had from you, or, or this other one from somebody else, or whatever." And that's the jollies we get. So, mm. yeah, I, I don't really relate to the idea that that anyone could really sit here um, uh, running a business off the placebo effect. I'd but, um, well, it also, yeah, I mean, that, that, that. in my experience, anyone who hears this stuff can hear the difference. Mm. Um, the big question is do do people care? You know, do people mm. want to get that much closer to, um, uh, you know, to to the feeling that Luciano Proverotti just got out of the grave and came to spend an evening singing to me? Mm. Does, does anyone really want to get that much closer for that much more money? Yes um and for some people that's true and for many it isn't there are other other places to spend their money
0: i mean that's a very important point is is a, it's about your own level of income and also how you prioritize spending your disposable income yes. right it's not it's not for everybody i mean i i i, I want to tackle another and if you'll forgive me for giving you a fairly curveball thorny question here mark is that i think a couple of months ago i saw a, a video on youtube which it, the kind of video that pops up every six months and what it is, it's like a, it's a computer, like a PC Mac type channel. And they're basically they've, they've discovered a music server online. I think this, this one wasn't yours. It wasn't any company that I knew of knew of actually, and it was 25 grand. Right. And they're going, this is just a, a computer in a box. and so this manufacturer wants 25 grand for it and. I can sort of see from that very reductionist point of view why that that kind of video gets traction and traffic. But could you explain to us a little bit, and um, without giving, obviously going too deep into your own personal financials, but why do these things that you make and other manufacturers make, I'm not just putting you in this, why, why do they cost so much?
1: Yeah. Um, one of the reasons is that um, uh, we don't sell it for what, um customers buy it for. Mm. Um, the the channels through which they're sold are low volume mm-hmm. and therefore high margin. Right. And I can see the world changing uh, with that, but it's changing very, very, very slowly. Mm. Um so the way in which people uh, wish to buy this sort of product um is really to have a bit of a relationship with a dealer and and have that personal touch and and uh, develop trust, etc. Et now I don't see a lot of dealers making a lot of money, mm. but the margins they require in order to survive are quite high mm. because it is a. So if you're buying a computer, you're talking about a very high um, volume business with very low margins. You're
0: talking about re, like you're, you're talking about normal everyday consumer grade PCs. Yeah, right?
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, which is the reason why we don't put. SSDs in our computers, we let customers do it mm. because if we put SSDs in our in our computers, there'd be um, you know by the time the margins were put on, there'd be mm-hmm, several times um, for you know to add a terabyte, mm. which is just silly. we see, our our competitors tend to do that, so we we put the effort into designing something where the customers can just slide them in, push them till they click, and you know with a. Uh, at your computer a click to initialize that disk. Um, we do that because we don't see ourselves as adding any value to an SSD. Yes. Um, the things we do put in the box, we do see ourselves as adding value to. And um, once we've spent the money, by the time a, a distributor who's who's working hard to make the brand and get um, dealer channels uh to get reviews etc in in country and and the dealer has um done the demos uh, allowed people to take it home etc um by the time they've done it yes the cost gets very very high so in terms of what's inside them well yes it is just a computer in a box but um uh you know there's no flubby dust in there <laughs> um but what we do with a computer, for example, um, I don't know whether I'll be going into too much detail and boring people here, but um, when Intel comes out with a new chipset for a motherboard, uh, they also publish um, a reference architecture. It's like a circuit diagram hmm. of how you would connect stuff up in order to use what that chipset can support. Um, and then the um, uh, the motherboard manufacturer takes that and says, "Well, for this motherboard, I need you know four USB twos and three, USB-2s. so I'll decide what I'm going to actually implement mm. that that chipset's capable of." And then I'm going to make good decisions about uh, the circuit layout and make good decisions about uh, the quality of the components that go on it. Now, in the consumer market. That sort of stuff is usually rushed out very quickly and often with not the best components. So the circuit layer board isn't, uh, uh, sorry, the laying out of the circuit board is not necessarily particularly well done. Mm. And that's because they're in a consumer market where people want, I want the latest. So where is it? Um, Gigabytes got it and new ASUs don't. So that's important to them. So it's raced out there fairly quickly. Um, so we, we, don't use a board like that. Um, mm. we use a board where someone has taken longer to develop that board and and the the two um, manufacturers that we work very closely with um, we've got a very good relationship with and long relationship we buy quite a lot of their stuff um, they will consult with us about you know what would you like on a board that we're doing that's like this with this with this mm. et etc so we have an input very early. On the piece, and mm-hmm. when we compare um, the board that's made that way with the consumer boards, they they sound considerably better, uh, and they are far more reliable, uh, etc.
0: Is that because they're, um, they're quieter from an electrical noise point of view?
1: Um, well, if you lay a circuit board more carefully, um, take more time over that, then you're going to have a lot less interference between a track and a component, a track and a track, all that sort of thing. So everything that carries um, an electrical signal is both an antenna and um, uh, and a transmitter mm-hmm. of, of noise to other things. So um, how you lay a circuit board's is important. They'll use better components because they're wanting to sell these boards, not just to me, but their primary business is selling it to people that are um, uh, putting them in you know, machines that go beep in hospitals Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, ATM machines that they don't want to go down because it loses the money, you know, industrial usage. Um, So a lot more time and effort goes into it and a lot more cost is involved Mm. They're more expensive. But more importantly, they have um, methods by which um, they adjust, you know, clock rates, if you like, or rates uh, at which chips operate on the board in order to um, uh, uh, work within um, regulations for uh, RFI, EMI emissions, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can, and we do, use those tools in order to go further than that. So we'll make sure that we don't get into modulation uh, between chips or we don't have coincidence of nodes between um, chips. So what I mean is every active component on that board is going to generate some form of noise. Mm -hmm. And if that coincides, if if a node of that noise, a peak of that noise coincides with a peak of something else there, which might not just be on that board, it might be, the interface to the SSDs we're using or something else mm. um, or the the power supplies that we're using. So what we do is we work that same method in order to reduce the overall noise floor by how you spread it. So by avoiding nodes clashing with nodes, you end up with a much lower noise floor. So there's a lot of work that we do um, to get that right. So the difference between... Um, the consumer board and what we end up with um, is quite different, and the board that we end up with is different f- from the from the board, even though it's physically identical, um, is different from the board that you know the bank for their ATM machine or, or the the hospital for their machine that goes beep um, get is also different because the the work we've done at the below what you see in bias level. Um, to to manage noise down. So, um, yep, it looks like it's just this, uh, that chipset, et cetera, but, but there's a heck of a lot more to it mm. to get us to, to something that performs like uh, at the level of an audio component.
0: And I would also think that you do a fair amount of work on power supplies as well, like inside the, the box, because like it's not like a normal like, computer power supply, is it?
1: Um, no, <laughs> although... <laughs> Yeah, it's been been a bit of a long trip. I think um, back in about two thousand eleven, we were the first uh, music server manufacturer of any scale to use um, linear power supplies to, to run our music servers. And I think a lot of DIYs were beginning to do that, but uh, we we're the first to do that and get away from um, um, from switch mode. But mm. one of the interesting things, or Ironies is that um, while the technology for linear power supplies has improved, uh, the technology for switch modes improved much, much faster. Oh. And um, I had an interesting experience with um, a chap who had bought our, one of our old DSs and he was running it with a, with a um, switch mode power supply that I think you know cost about $8. dollars mm-hmm. US dollars for us to buy, uh, and then he said, "You know," uh, he said, "Well, I want to upgrade it with the with the linear power supply." I sent it to him, and uh, he came back and said, "I don't like it." I thought, "Well, that's interesting," because I've <laughs> certainly done lots of demos where people thought, "Wow, this is so much better." Mm. And so I quizzed him on it, and he said, "Well, I listen to electronic music, and just the you know, I'm far more engaged with the um, switch mode power supply and and while it's tonally nicer and possibly more accurate with the linear power supply, I just find it's, it's just not quite there. And I thought, gee, this is interesting. Mm. I'm going to have a listen to this, and and he was, I could hear what he was actually reacting to. Um, the linear power supply um, uh, <clears throat> was much more timberly correct, no question of that. And that with the switch mode power supply, um, you know, the timber was bloody awful, and I couldn't really listen too much to what I liked. But it was rhythmically better. Uh, it hmm. communicated the life and the music better. And I thought, jeepers, he's he's not wrong. There's something there. And um, so over the last several years, we've actually done a lot of work on how we uh, strip some of the linear elements out. Uh, and with advances in um uh, technology, we've been able to do more and more of that, um, such that um, very soon I think we'll we'll have um, all switch mode power supplies, not not eight dollar ones, I might add, mm. and expensive to do it properly. We we've sort of developed a cascade of three um, switch mode topologies that happen to work together extraordinarily well um, for a. Uh, quite a big uh, improvement in sound quality, particularly in the sort of ease and flow of the music without um, losing anything else um, compared with something that's got uh, linear components in it. So it's a little bit anathema. There's plenty of people out there that that agree with me on the design side, but they say, gee, Mark, you're a, you're a brave man telling customers about <laughs> the fact that you're using switch mode because... It's not going to be easily understood. So here I am putting my foot in my mouth again.
0: No, but I think um, I think it's interesting because you see other manufacturers making a big noise about their linear power supplies. And I'm sure well, I know, especially one that yep. I've had experience with. It does, it does for me, well, that product itself does facilitate greater ease and relaxation to the music. But I can certainly see what you mean or what your customer means about electronic music music being so sort of robbed of some of its rhythmic. Energy. All music is. All music right. is. It's it sort of, I say it's pretty
1: music, but it's pretty boring as well. Mm. Um, uh, I'm not talking about anybody in particular. I'm just saying. Oh, no, no, sure. Um, we're not, um, so I, I often go over and, and not as often as I like, go and see my mate Warwick Davenport in Australia mm. and he's got his $130,000 turntable and we put the music server on against and I go, Huh, okay, at least I know what direction I've got to go in. <laughs> right. And um, and it really struck me several years ago that we had actually nicer uh, timber and all the rest of it, but it just lacked the dynamics and it lacked the life, the get up and go, the thing that makes you sort of want to dance. And, um, and we've been on a bit of a mission since then to close that gap. And I think we kind of have. I, I wouldn't say that we're the same sound at all as, as a $130,000 turntable, but that big difference that was sitting there um, six years ago, I think we've closed it um, with, our, with our latest Aladra, um, which is not cheap. Um, but we'll we'll look at ways of, of trickling that down as, as um, the technology emerges uh, matures a bit further.
0: Right, I see. So okay, so you switch my power supplies in. Well, is it in all your new products, Mark? Or
1: most? Uh, no, no. Um, doing we do it in the larger only. The larger is the, our most expensive product, and it's um, it is expensive to do mm-hmm. properly. I mean, there are there are advantages in that. Um, you know, with a with a transformer, um, if you locate you know your transformer too far from uh, where you want the power, then you, you know, that creates a certain form of issue, but if you locate it close while you can do some electrical um, uh, 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 <clears throat> you know, screening or whatever, you can't necessarily deal with a magnetic uh, without without a whole lot of mu metal maybe. <laughs> um, so getting away from the linear transformer um, and getting away from the slowness of... Um, uh, linear uh, regulators mm. um, has some massive benefits, but it takes a lot of design and still quite a lot of cost to get you get you a um, actually a lower uh, noise floor with with our switch mode than we achieve with the linear. Mm. So I'll say it's not just what we do; it's also that the technology with switch mode is just uh, uh, racing ahead.
0: Mm. My final question, Mark relates to a, a podcast I did recently with a chap who measures audio gear, but the, the theme of the podcast wasn't just like how awesome are measurements. It was like, well, okay, what can we measure and what can we not measure as, you know, as we hear it? it's like, how does how do the measurements relate to hearing and other things that were missing on both sides of the, of the fence. Now we hear a lot about electrical noise as the, as it relates to digital audio signals. Why is it that, and I—I I mean, forgive me if you have published this because I—I don't think I've seen it—is that music server manufacturers make—they talk a lot about electrical noise, but we don't see, I guess, what in a in a very limited, myopic kind of way you might describe as measurement proof of its presence or, and therefore, its reduction.
1: Well, I think any um, uh, any scope will be able to show you that you you square wave's got noise on it mm. um, whether that results in jitter and what pattern it puts on the jitter is is really what matters so um, jitter is a little bit like a THD you know a total harmonic distortion mm-hmm. measure for an amplifier It it won't tell you which one you which amplifier you're going to like better and um, the measurement guys will say oh well if you like the one that's got a higher THD you just like distortion. Mm. Um, but they're kind of missing the point. Um, our ear-brain system um, uh, reacts differently to different types of distortion. Um, for example, listen to a guitar, and, and it's distorted. It's distorted by the sound of the body of the guitar, mm-hmm. the, um, the twang of the string, etc. It's not not pure tones like listening to a cassia tone. Um so there are distortions that are, that are natural and we can decode and we can make sense of, and then there's others that are just so unnatural that um, they're off-putting and we want to turn it down, or at least the wife tells us to turn it down mm-hmm. um, with her better hearing. Um, so JIT is a good example. So JIT is just a, a number that averages across all the um, uh, the timing distortions that are, that are there in a digital signal, and they're inevitably there because nothing's ever perfect. Mm. Um, but what I've found is different patterns in the jitter have quite a different effect on my enjoyment of the music mm. than others. Um, and the patterns in the jitter, um, to me, are more getting more in the way um, almost than the quantum of the jitter. Um, so some... Um, patterns will really screw up the um, mid-range, particularly upper mid-range, and be really egregious. Mm. And others might soften the bass a little or or, or whatever uh, and not be so egregious. So just a um, a measure like jitter is easy for science to measure, but whether it correlates with um, listening, pleasure uh, is pretty far-fetched for me actually so Um, you're
0: saying that the so you know so can i just be clear you're saying that the it's it's not just the sort of absolute amount of jitter but it's the profile of that jitter like distortion that influences how we might enjoy or not what we're hearing yeah so getting back to
1: the early discussion um if jitter changes the timing of um a digital signal going into a deck it also changes the timing dimension of the analog signal that comes out. Yep, yep. So it's distorting the signal. Mm-hmm. So, um, so different uh, patterns in the jitter um, affect the sound in different parts of the spectrum and our ears are much more sensitive to some parts, distortion of some parts of the spectrum than others. Mm. So particularly upper mid-range, it's really annoying when yes. jitter screws that up. Um, you know, jitter can actually go both ways. It can make it Harsh and awful, um, or it can make it sound muffled and lacking presence. So with with CD players, the, the jitter tended uh, in the early days to have that sort of harsh and thin, uh, hard mm-hmm. sound. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, some some power supplies applied to to boards um, will actually make uh, the jitter will actually make them sound muffled because it's affecting that uh, upper mid-range again, but just in a different way. Mm. Um, So, you know, as Einstein said, not everything that matters is measurable. And and one of the critics, uh, criticisms of of the whole scientific method, uh, and I'm not saying this to criticise the scientific method, but those that do criticise it, um, say, well, if something has an effect but is not... um, Consistently, repeatably, uh, measurable, then it's not in any accepted scientific theory. Mm. Um, so, you know, maybe it's just a matter of we're not looking in the right places yet for how to measure this thing. But um, for a practitioner, that you know, I'm not going to sit here and wait until they do that. We've just got to move ahead anyway. If mm. I don't like it, then we um, we don't do that. And if I do like the sound of it, enjoyment music than we do. So I think every designer and high end audio is like that. It's, you know, the, the design person um, is really someone who has very good ears uh, and who easily, quickly understands whether something's getting in the way of getting the um, their emotional enjoyment uh, out of the music. Arguably, the person who doesn't hear any difference and likes it all may have better hearing because their brain's able to to decode all of that and think past it Mm. Um, uh, and us audio designers may not have golden ears, we might actually have retarded brains that can't get past that stuff (laughs) I don't know know how how you should be looking at this but that's what we have to do because um, measurement on its own can only indicate if it's bad then I've actually got something wrong in the design here and I should go and analyse what that is and try and remove it Uh, But beyond a certain level, it's not helping. Um, Getting beyond um, it to um, towards perfection, we are really reliant on it, on our own reaction to things.
0: Um, So, does that mean that when you're developing a new service streamer, you're, I mean, how much are you measuring and how much are you listening and kind of honing the product?
1: What I tend to do, I tend to grab a few different new boards that come out and plonk them into something that I know generally works and see whether I hear anything in it. Mm. Now, it might to others sound bad, but I might hear something important in it Mm -hmm. and I might go, no, this is worth working with. Um, And sometimes that's uh, fruitful and sometimes that isn't. Mm. Uh, So a lot of it is just experimental and I think – If um, high-end audio designers were uh, completely open and uh, and honest, uh, they would probably say most of their inventions have been happy accidents. Mm. Um, But, you know, the other point is um, if the science has been around for a long time and well accepted, then why look under all the rocks everyone else has looked under? You know, why not try things that people have dismissed as well? That can't make a difference. Mm. Why not look at those things and and you may find that leap towards perfection uh, that wasn't coming any other way for you. So there there needs to be a degree of just experimentation. Uh, as I say, um, if there's something gross going on with uh, that shows up in the measurements, you've probably already heard that. Mm. Uh, I've got to say. Um, but definitely we will do the measurements to to see, you know, is there something that really shouldn't be here uh, and therefore maybe there's something wrong. It might be an intermodulation between two things that we didn't expect to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so therefore we go in and we, we adjust that thing, or one of those things or both of those things, to, to stop that intermodulation or swap something out or whatever. So it's it's definitely useful to find some bad stuff but it's not going to help you find the magic of the next the next improvement
0: so it helps you eliminate mistakes engineering mistakes yes but it doesn't it doesn't help you sort of look forward in i guess i mean the next great thing well also look forward into, into how it how one may enjoy this product audibly right as a as a A sound machine. Oh, absolutely.
1: uh, Yeah, absolutely not. The the measurement's never going to say, well, I bet this sounds great. Mm. Um, It it may sound good, but you can probably discern it's going to sound good for measurement, but not something that's got the magic that was there if you were there in the room with the recording artist when they recorded it.
0: Mark Jenkins, I think this is probably a good time to wrap it up on that note. Thank you very much for joining me today for again a very illuminating conversation
1: well thanks john for listening to me prattling on
0: (laughs) my pleasure